Hey guys, so I am inserting this intro bit post-production because I originally wanted to title this episode related to Serbian folklore because I am Serbian, living in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is a semi-Serbian country. It's very complicated. But yeah, that's the reason I'm doing this intro bit, because I am talking about legends from the Balkan Peninsula, but maybe people would think that they are purely Serbian myths or purely Slavic myths. So I wanted to let my American listeners know that the Balkan Peninsula is a cultural clusterfuck. The Greeks were already here, the Illyric peoples were already here, then the Southern Slavs came here and merged with the Illyrics and exchanged exchanged culture with the Greeks, then the Ottoman Turkish Empire dominated us for centuries. And then we mixed our cultures with Turkish culture and Islam as well as Christianity. My own country of Bosnia and Herzegovina officially has three presidents because we have three ethnic groups, Serbs, Croatians, and Bosniaks who are Muslim. And to settle the war that happened here in the 90s, it was determined that we should have three presidents. So going into this episode, please note that I may say Balkan, I may say Slavic, I may say Serbian, but please note this is all a mixture of a lot of different things. The Rosafa legend, for instance, that you will hear is actually an Albanian legend, but it has origins in a lot of Serbian legends, the exact same legend, just with different names. Instead of Albanian names, we use Serbian names. But nonetheless, the Rosafa legend is the most popular one because of the castle that was erected, and I wanted to share that as well. I want to be inclusive, which is not something that Balkan people usually do because we have many different countries that all speak the same language. But we are different ethnic groups, yeah, we have all the same origins, except for maybe Albanians, because it is still debatable whether Albanians are Slavic, because it's thought that they are culturally a mixture of Slavs, the Ottoman Turks, and the Greeks. I don't want to go into that. But another legend I state regarding uh, vampire watermelons originates in Kosovo, which is very... (laughs) Serbian and Albanian, but is now an independent country where they call themselves Kosovars. But the legend I shared originates from Romani people in Kosovo, but also originates from Serbian and Albanian legends. And also, if you didn't know, vampire is a Serbian word. Man, you Americans think that it is very questionable to talk about other cultures, yet you do not understand how tough it is as a Balkan person to talk about my own culture because we don't even know where the borders are between all of our cultures here. And yet we are all the same people with the same language and the same origins technically, but we all interpret our origins in different ways and that's why we hate each other. But in reality, and as you will see in this episode, Balkan Slavs actually hate themselves.
I am loving this short form episode format I'm doing. And yeah, this is more like an audio blog than a podcast. I'm putting out an episode every other day, just ranting about whatever's on my mind. And I just wanted to rant now about something I was uh, thinking about last night before bed. So in the past few months, I have been kind of peeking into a paranormal community that refers to itself as the excluded middle, mostly via the Radio Mysterioso Facebook group. And the term the excluded middle, I think, comes from a magazine that was uh, published by Greg Bishop in the late 80s, early 90s. Greg Bishop being the person who formulated the co-creation theory of the paranormal, which Jordan of Campfire Tales and I have been bringing up constantly throughout the last month. So long story short, this group is full of people who are the excluded middle of the paranormal circles. They are not true believers and they are not skeptics. They are more Helians, the kind of people who would reject the extraterrestrial hypothesis of explaining UFOs and say, oh, maybe it is not aliens, but maybe it is, you know, a psychosocial thing. Maybe it's a psychedelic thing. Maybe it's a phenomenon that is catered to the experiencer and is very personal to them. Very logical things that for some reason are shunned in the mainstream UFO community. So yesterday I uh, po- made a post about my new episodes celebrating the life of James Lovelock because he sadly passed away a few days ago. And I got, got a response from none other than David Perkins, who is another 14 who has been researching into the Gaia hypothesis and trying to tie it into the paranormal. David Perkins was one of the OG mute investigators, mute as in cattle mutilations. He helped Linda Moulton Howe do her research into the topic. He helped her with her uh, film, A Strange Harvest. And then she went the ETH route and became famous. And David Perkins had more alternative ideas to the phenomenon and is thus respected by the excluded middle crowd, which does not eat up mainstream bullshit. And if you don't know, uh, the last episode I did on the guy hypothesis, guy in consciousness, uh, cosmic playground, or whatever I called it, the email exchange I had with uh, another person was actually with uh, David Perkins. So anyway, I made this post, I uh, got a comment from David Perkins, and we got into some conversation where I asked, are we maybe kind of desecrating Lovelock's work by appropriating the Gaia theory to explain the paranormal when obviously climate change and obviously the ecological crisis that is going on now should be of, you know, main importance. I've been thinking and thinking about this uh, for the past few days because uh, James Lovelock passed away. He even uh, said that the biosphere is on the last 1% of its life force and just bringing up these themes of death. And then I remember that another author recently published a book tying death to the paranormal. And I am obviously referring to Joshua Kutchin and his new book, Ecology of Souls. I have not started reading the book yet, but I have heard Joshua on a podcast and talked to him a bit in chat. He seems to be tying the paranormal, the fey encounters with entities, NDEs, OBEs, and alien abductions and UFO encounters 
encounters with death and the afterlife. Kind of like what Raymond Fowler was doing later on in his career, but also uh, a lot of Terence McKenna's ideas there as well. But that got me thinking, like, if paranormal experiences are uh, essentially tied to death or people touching death in a way and having these experiences, if humans can experience the paranormal as a result of death, as a result of coming into touch with the afterlife or if there is one, if people can have near-death experiences, then can a Gaian entity also go through all this? And if we are a part of a Gaian consciousness, and if Gaia is dying, and if Gaia is experiencing death-related paranormal experiences and near-death experiences, would this be affecting us? And would all these paranormal anomalies be actually us experiencing Gaia's process of perishing. I'm gonna leave that for a whole other episode, because I am still not sure of my ideas, as you will see from how this discussion went. So I suggested all this, and I said, like, Josh may know this much more than me, but, like, having people stumbled upon the Fae Folk after picking flowers or picking berries or desecrating the forest, uh, constantly hunters are killing deer and then stumbling upon Bigfoot. I'm currently reading the Andreas Affair Phase 2, and in it, there is an account of a little girl who was snapping branches of a tree and immediately after that a UFO showed up. And even Betty Andreessen had as a girl an experience where she was putting traps for animals around the forest and then was attacked by a grey who crawled out of a hole in the ground and asked her why she was trapping animals and then just took away her traps. So, you know, this tie of desecrating nature and essentially killing nature sparking a paranormal phenomenon. So Josh commented fairly quickly because there is a lot of stuff to comment on that it should be explored in depth but he did tell me that i should make a distinction between an animistic view and a gaian view and this brings me to the main topic of this episode so throughout the few uh, last months since i appeared on six degrees of john keel talking about the Gaia hypothesis and uh say using the word animism a few times because barbara the host of that show told me that she also has fairly animistic views. I've been using that word on my podcast appearances, but I've been warned by a few people throughout the last few months to be very careful when using the term animism or to be careful when referring to someone as an animist. Now, I am not an anthropologist. I am not a religious scholar. I am just a dumbass biologist who does not even work in the field anymore, making a podcast where I rant about paranormal stuff. But from what I know, and a cursory examination of Wikipedia, isn't animism the belief that things have a soul, that humans have a soul, that animals have a soul, but also natural phenomena and also rocks. Or you may use soul and spirit interchangeably. So I was warned a few times and then I heard uh, a few people, including Josh on podcasts, kind of saying, yeah, animism is kind of a dirty word right now. Even though Joshua told me, he, yeah, he uses the word in, in his own book. And that got me wondering, why, why is animism a dirty word? I don't get it. Is there some kind of <laughs> discriminatory cultural context that I'm not understanding? Like, you know, in the East, the swastika used to be a good symbol, and then the Nazis appropriated the symbol, and it 
became a very bad thing. It has somebody appropriated the word animism and now we should not be using the word. So I asked Josh to elaborate because I am Serbian and I live in Bosnia and I may... <laughs> not be aware of certain Western contexts of words. I may sometimes say something that is offensive to Americans because in America something means a completely different thing than what it actually means when you're learning the meaning of the word as a foreigner. So Josh, let me know that it is a kind of dirty word, or at least considered by some in Western society because of the way Westerners perceive the mind and the soul, and because Westerners have been using animism to describe the beliefs of indigenous people. Probably very derogatory, like, yeah, look at those animists, they don't even believe in multiple gods, much less just one god like us, they believe a rock has a soul. Well, the thing is, as a Serbian, we don't have a cultural historical context of coming into contact with indigenous people and being racist or discriminatory towards them. And also, if you look at Eastern cultures, animism was a very big thing, especially in Japan. So if you don't know the Japanese religion, I mean, the traditional Japanese religion is Shinto. And Shinto, from what I can see on Wikipedia and other sources, because I'm not an expert, seems to be a very animistic belief system. Because they believe in something called the kami, and the kami are essentially spirits that reside in everything. In humans, in animals, and even in rocks and objects. Most of you do know via popular culture that Japanese people don't have a concept of cryptids or, I don't know, demons or whatever, but rather they have yokai. And Westerners interpret yokai as, as demons and monsters, but rather yokai are very tied into Shinto belief because because yokai are spirits. They are characters that people stumble upon in these uh, folkloric tales and learn something through humility by interacting with the spirit, the yokai. Very, very animistic. But in the West, animism seems to not be used derog as a derogatory term towards the Japanese, but rather towards, I guess, Native Americans, especially tribes who believed in nature and everything in nature having a spirit. And this Western view of animism being the most primitive form of belief system that eventually evolves into polytheism and eventually into monotheism. Uh, I'm adding this in post-production because of cancel culture fuckupries. And I'm not even American. When I say that animism is perceived as the most primitive form of religious belief, I am saying that is the Western interpretation or the consensus of what Western interpretation is. Uh, it is not my personal belief. Onto the show. Because animists do not believe in gods necessarily, they believe in spirits of everything. But a distinction that should be made between animistic and Gaian thought is that per animism, a rock has its own soul, an animal has its own soul, a plant has its own soul, so everything has its own distinct uh, soul or spirit or a consciousness. But with Gaian thought, there is one collective consciousness or one collective soul. It's not 
not compartmentalized as separate entities, but it is all uh, monistically tied to one entity. So, in a way, animism is kind of... Should it be the opposite of monism? Anyway, yeah, the Western interpretation of animism seems to be very different from the Eastern interpretation of animism. But where do I fall in as a Serb, as a Slav? We neither have Western nor Eastern interpretation of animism, but we used to be animistic. And I don't know if that's a dirty term for me to say, but I am Serbian, so I sure as heck have the right to say that we used to be animists. Even Wikipedia says so, because if you look at the Wikipedia article for early Slavs and look at the beliefs, religion, whatever chapter, it says that the early Slavs used to be pagan and animistic. So I want to use this episode to share a bit about how we Slavs used to perceive <laughs> all this. And I do say used to because now uh, we Serbs and most Slavs are Christian. Very, very Christian. And even bringing up our paganistic history is met with harsh criticism and it's very taboo and people say oh you want to worship the devil and you're against Jesus. Very sad what happened to my people because we used to be more in tune with nature. So I am not an expert in even my own history or, or culture and uh, people may contact me and say oh you made this mistake, you made that mistake even people who are not from my culture but that's totally okay because me being a Serb does not mean that I am am an expert in Serbian culture, and somebody not being a Serb does not mean that they cannot be an expert in my own culture. When we talk about cultures, especially today, we are so offended by the notion that somebody can appropriate a culture or look into a culture that is not their own, and that we should ask people of that culture everything. But let's be real, not every person in a culture knows their cultural history, and not every foreigner is out there to exploit or appropriate somebody's culture. We need to help each other in order to figure out these things. Especially in my culture, as I said, we are now very, very Christian. We are very conservative. And we are a very corrupt society. We perpetuate myths and lies and conspiracies. And because my people are closed off from communication with outsiders, with foreigners, especially about things happening in my culture, we are left inside this echo chamber where politicians, corrupt politicians, tell us what to believe about our history and our religion and our culture. So I'd sure as heck want somebody from the outside to look into everything here and dig into the actual truth about our origins. Nevertheless, from what we know, all Slavic people were used to be in uh, the early Middle Ages, what is known as early Slavs. And these were just a whole giant group of, of tribal communities. This was not a whole people, a whole culture. This, was this is just a term to refer to many, many different tribes. Now, early Slavs uh, migrated to different parts of the European continent. So you have Eastern Slavs, which uh, migrated towards Russia, and now you have Russians as Eastern Slavs. But I am from the Balkans, and we are descendants of the Southern Slavs, who merged with the Illyric peoples who were living on the Balkan Peninsula, and formed the clusterfuck that we have now of uh, Serbians and Bosnians and Croatians and Montenegrians and Albanians and Macedonians and Slovenians and oh man and Bulgarians and Romanians wow most of our history has been forgotten but we do 
know that the early Slavs were pagans and were animists. Certain tribes did not have gods per se in the early days, but eventually we did form a polytheistic uh, pantheon that is very homologous, very uh, similar to the R Roman, to the Greek, to the Norse pantheons. We did have beliefs in the fey folk, we did have beliefs in demons, and mostly the fey folk and the demons were associated with natural occurrences or with uh, objects in nature or with animals. We did believe that nature or components of nature had a spirit associated with it. I have some cool examples from my own Serbian cultural heritage. So one cool example I want to go do a lot of research into and maybe dedicate a whole episode to is this belief, folkloric belief we had that uh, buildings that uh, houses or bridges or castles, you know, constructs had a spirit associated with them. And if you are constructing a house or a castle or a bridge, you need to offer a blood sacrifice to the object or rather to the spirit of the object so your construction process may go smoothly without any issues. So what they do in the old days if constructing let's say a castle or a bridge is they would wall in a person who they would dedicate as a blood sacrifice and per our folklore mostly this was voluntary. So there is this myth that originated in what is now Albania and they do have a castle over there. And because I don't know the exact details, I'm just going to read this article related to this. So this article is from Culture Trip, The Legend of Rosafa Castle in Albania. And this is just a partial uh, part of the article. So it says... Once upon a time, there were three brothers married to three beautiful wives who lived in what is now northern Albania. The three brothers worked very hard day and night to build a castle to protect their town. But every time they finished the work, the castle's walls would fall down. They didn't know why. One day, they met an old man who told them that there was only one way to keep the castle walls from tumbling down a sacrifice. The sacrifice consisted of burying one of the wives in the wall of the castle, particularly the first wife to bring lunch to her husband the next day. The brothers promised for the good of the castle and the town not to say anything about the sacrifice to their wives, but obviously things went in a different way. The two older brothers, once at home, explained the situation to their wives, while the youngest brother said nothing to the wife. The day after, the three brothers waited anxiously for lunchtime. The wives of the older brothers didn't come with lunch, but Rosafa, the wife of the youngest brother, came with her box full of delicacies. Um, okay. Um... That was worded weirdly. <laughs> Rosafa's husband explained to her that she had to be sacrificed and buried in the walls of the castle in order for the castle to be finished. Rosafa didn't protest. She accepted her fate, but under one condition, the brothers would have to leave a hole for her right breasts so her newborn son could feed, another hole for her right hand to caress him, and a third hole for her right foot to move the cradle, and the castle never collapsed. The legend of Rosafa is about the strength of a woman who sacrificed her life for something bigger. Today, Rosafa Castle is one of the most interesting places to visit in Albania and is a must-see for anybody who spends time in the enchanted town of Škodra. And there is an image that I am very familiar with because this story has interested me since childhood and it is a part of the wall of the castle with 
sculpture of Rosafa breastfeeding her baby, but she is partially walled in. Now, how fucked up is that? <laughs> <laughs> to the Western audience who may be listening, but over here, it was a part of our culture. We even have legends. Uh, there is, in my country, a city called Visegrad, which has the most famous Bosnian bridge, which is known as Nadrin Čupria, or the bridge on the river Drina, which is the title of a book that was written by our famous author, Ivo Andrić, who won a Nobel Prize. And the book is about the lives of the people associated with the construction of the bridge, and I believe there are many accounts of people being sacrificed for the construction of the bridge. It is a part of our culture because of this animistic belief from the olden days that these objects have a soul and that you need to appease the soul of the object. Now, another myth that originates from the Romani and the Serbian population of Kosovo, which used to be in Serbia but is now an independent country, is the belief that inanimate objects like, say, a hammer, or pumpkins, gourds, squashes, and even watermelons, if left outside under the full moon, can become vampires. And this stems from the belief that inanimate objects and gourds and uh, uh, watermelons and pumpkins have a spirit. These vampire hammers or pumpkins or watermelons, if they become vampirized, would move around the house and terrorize... <laughs> the family, not necessarily terrorized, but rather be more of a nuisance. They would also make sounds like brr, brr, brr. I'm not making this up. This is actual folklore from my uh, country, but a very, very animistic folklore. Now, most of our early pagan and animistic uh, days have been lost to history or rather destroyed because the early Slavs during the 7th century uh, became very rapidly Christianized. Over here, we have uh, essentially orthodox religious study as a class in even primary school, grade school, like from grade one. It is technically not mandatory, but nobody wants to say their child can't have the religious class because they'll be picked on, because we, we are not a secular society at all. So as a child, I had this religious class in school, and they teach you in the 7th century, the, these two guys, Cirillo and Metodia, taught these savage early Slavs who were pagans about Christianity and about Jesus, and then we became a much more enlightened people. What actually happened? is that they were going throughout villages and essentially telling people either you believe in Jesus or we fucking kill you. And then after all of these villages were converted converted to Christianity then there was a systematic burying and destruction of the paganistic old days. Some people may know that in Bosnia in a town called Visoko we have what we claim to be a Bosnian pyramid. When you look at images of the Bosnian pyramid it looks like a hill but the, which is very pyramid pyramid shaped. And what we believe is that after our Christianization, somebody buried the pyramids under dirt and it throughout the centuries became a hell. Nevertheless, these animistic and paganistic beliefs have been passed down through generations because our, our, our people are very non-conformist to, to ideologies. Like we say openly, oh, we support that political or that religious ideology, but really we say one thing but think another and do 
do a third thing. And these villages have been keeping their paganistic traditions, but slowly they've been incorporated into Christianity, Serbian Orthodox Christianity, and now the Christianity we do have is a clusterfuck of Christianity and our own paganistic ways. Also, there is a whole movement called uh, Rodovieri, which is not a big thing here, but is more of a big thing in Russia and in Poland and in other more developed Slavic countries of uh, younger crowds trying to revitalize the old uh, early Slav paganistic days by forming a neo-paganistic religious and belief system. I used to be friends with a guy who was very into this and he taught me a lot. He even opened my eyes because this is this is stuff nobody talks about in my country and a lot of the historical evidence is lost and it's very sad. It's very sad that my people don't embrace their origins and just pretend that we were all savages before converting to Christianity. The Christianity that was fed to us by the Byzantine Empire. I've been also fascinated with this um, myth And as you may realize, Slavic, Serbian, whatever, Bosnian, folklore is very fucked up. Even after we became Christians, we still held on to these animistic and paganistic beliefs, but just rebranded them as Christians. So, in the old days, as you may know, children used to die a lot. Either women would have miscarriages or babies would be born and die or sudden infant death syndrome or whatever. Now, since we became Christian, baptized, became a very big thing in our culture. So as soon as a child is born, well, not as soon, but after a few months, you need to baptize it quickly. And this belief stems actually from this fact that babies used to die a lot. So you need to baptize a baby before the baby dies so it may go into heaven or whatever because a baby is born sinful for just existing without its consent. However, there is this myth in my culture of the plakavats, or a translated the crier, and it is a vam- an undead vampiric infant that is created when a baby does dies unbaptized or when the parent kills the baby while it is unbaptized. This undead baby creeps around the house of their parents at night and cries and cries the whole night and yells out, baptize me, baptize me. There is not much info on this belief, but it did sprout into a lot of different beliefs about other different monstrous entities, I wanted to dedicate a whole episode to just this motif of infant death sparking a folkloric monster because this motif is used by a culture to promote infant baptism because of Christian propaganda. But also it stems from old-timey paganistic beliefs. So it's very interesting, like Christianity in my culture, using pagan beliefs against the uh, people who are just converted but still holding on to their beliefs in order to have them baptize their children as Christians. This is a very interesting thing. It does not exist in my country. It, it exists in Norse mythology as well. I think they're called Mylings over there, and it exists in Filipino uh, folklore as well, where it's called the Tingyanak. A lot of undead, unbaptized children throughout the newly converted uh, Christian cultures around the world. But, um... 
on what part of the scale do we fit in regarding to animism, regarding to the views of animism? Are our beliefs kind of similar to the Western interpretation of animism, or is it the Eastern interpretation of animism? Surely not the Eastern, because the Eastern animistic belief systems are still in place and still embraced by people and a part of popular culture, while our ours was buried and, I don't know, the modern uh, consensus over here people don't generally know about our paganistic and animistic history and don't acknowledge it and there is no hate to be spread towards it or discrimination because it is just not a thing in the public consciousness. So I can't say it is the Western interpretation of saying, oh, these were savages <laughs> with uh, very primitive belief systems. And if you are offended by this, I am referring to my own people and th that's the thing, like we are very sheltered and we do not communicate these things with outsiders because instead of discriminating other people, we discriminate ourselves. We are a self-consuming culture. We have a rich, rich and very long history of bloody wars and battles, most of which we have lost. And nobody will tell you this openly because uh, most of our history is based on epic poetry and folklore and legends where we say, yeah, we did lose, but we had this cool hero in this cool battle and we showed them instead got slaughtered. I don't know, we are not Western and we are not Eastern. Maybe at the end of the day, my people are the excluded middle of the animistic spectrum. Thank you.